0: I'm Naira. I'm Ellie. I'm Nina. I'm Joanna. This is Politics Under the Microscope, where we explore issues that matter to you by connecting science, policy,
1: and society. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Politics Under the Microscope. I'm Nina and I'm here with my co-host Shnaira. And today we are lucky enough to be joined by Barbara and Jennifer of Cherokee Concerned Citizens. Cherokee Concerned Citizens or CCC was officially formed in 2013 by concerned residents of the Cherokee subdivision in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Pascagoula, Mississippi is a fence line community which exists near several polluting facilities including Chevron, First Chemical, Mississippi Phosphates, and VT Halter. Keep listening to hear more about how CCC has applied pressure to local government to hold some of these polluting facilities accountable and hear more about what you can do to support them in their mission. Barbara, Jennifer, thank you both so much for your time, and you know what, let's get right into it. To start off, we all come from different places. Joanna is from Canada, I'm from Pennsylvania, Naira is from New Jersey, and Ellie is from Wisconsin. But we're all located in New York City, and I would state that we're not all super familiar with the Gulf states. And honestly, I would imagine a lot of our listeners may not be either. So can you talk to us about how your geography as a fence line community impacts your environmental outlook? More specifically, can you talk to us about the chemical and industrial production in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and offshore drilling for those who are unfamiliar with the area?
2: Well, good evening, ladies. I'm Barbara. And I do work with Jennifer, she's become like a sister to me over the years, so we just kind of glued to each other. She's been a part of my family, and we love her to death. Now, as for this fence line community that I live in, we are located here in Pascagoula, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. With all of the casinos and the fish and the seafood and all of that good stuff. Now to the real stuff. These chemical plants that are actually, I can walk out of my mother's front door. And I am across the ditch from Mississippi, from Chevron, from VT Halter. All of these refineries are literally at my fingertips, so to speak. The chemicals here that are released are bad for us. There are, you know, and of course they pass the book from one person to the next. Nobody wants to take on the responsibility that this stuff is being released, it's toxic. It's harming our community, it's killing our people. Our babies are born with deformities. You know, this stuff is bad and nobody wants to be held accountable. Nobody wants to be responsible. I understand and we know that you have to make money, okay? We understand that, but there is a better way. You're paying scientists millions and millions of dollars What's the issue? You got the knowledge. What's the problem with using something that will not take the life of another person? VT Halter is you know, one of the closest plants that we have, that I have right here at my door. A couple of weeks ago, I was telling Jennifer the other night, I said there was something being released I don't know what it was, but there was this great big pillar of black smoke. I followed it as far as I could without getting arrested. I didn't want to trespass on that property. <laughs> I was too tired to climb the fence. So, you know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't get over there. But the, the, the area and where it was is coming down Highway 63. We call it industrial road. And that big cloud of smoke. I mean, it was so far in the air that it was all the way down to VT Halter and Chevron. I don't know what was released. I never saw anything in the paper. I never heard anything about it. This stuff is being released in the air and we do not receive any kind of warning nothing that goes across your phone or across your television screen that says we are releasing whatever you know it's just like it don't matter they do what they want to do but anyway ron you know is one of the largest polluters in this area it is the one of the largest refineries in the united states so, I I got a problem with them not notifying the community as to what's being released, because if you sit outside and just all of a sudden you see a big puff of smoke, and immediately your eyes start to burn, your sign your your silences are horrible. I have two daughters right now, both of them. Well, one of them with upper respiratory infection, sinusitis. This comes from being outside at an event that was at our beach park about two weeks ago. And she was not outside two hours. And this is what she's having to deal with now, still having to deal with going to the doctor, buying medication, and the side effects from the medication it's causing other issues, but yet it's still you. It's, it's hard for them to breathe, you know, inhaling and stuff. You can't go outside and sit outside and enjoy your patio because of the chemicals. Your eyes are itching, your ears hurt, your throat hurt, tonsillitis, anything that's upper respiratory. And a lot of people on here have skin problems. Because of the your itching, dry skin. And had a neighbor of mine, the dog had chemical burns on his feet. Because the soil is contaminated, but nobody's responsible. Okay. You know, BP Enterprises, another company processing plants in the nation. You know, they're not required to report all the toxins they release into the air. Which is a problem for me. Because there's no way OSHA should allow this to happen. Oh, did I lose face? But anyway, that's enough about that. We need help in these areas with all of this stuff because it's just wrong. You know, it's just wrong.
1: And 100% I definitely understand what you're stating because I'm from Pennsylvania and, you know, fracking is certainly one of the industries that happens to be king in my home state. I'm from Pittsburgh, you know, Steel City, literally. I mean... You know responsible for producing such a sizable chunk of the domestic steel for much of the 20th century which really kind of helped propel the united states into becoming the world power that it ended up being right like having the domestic steel to build warships to build submarines planes almost everything that you would need i mean the making of a nation really and you know there was this joke that i'd heard you know when you hear about historical pittsburgh growing up that you couldn't wear a white shirt in pittsburgh or you'd have to take a white shirt in like a briefcase or something because by the time that you managed to go somewhere your shirt would be covered in like dust and smog and soot and i suppose it's certainly interesting for me right because when i think even back to hearing that It's kind of like an open secret, like, yes, we understand that that's why people are sick or that's why they have breathing problems, but we're not going to talk about it because they happen to be the local industry. And you can even see it with fracking now in some places that there is opposition or, you know, based on some of the other endeavors that are natural gas based in my state, that there is opposition to discussing this publicly, even though it very much so poses a health risk to the communities that these sorts of endeavors are happening in on the topic of thinking about, you know, your environment and sort of, you know, what the air quality is like, or, you know, changes that may be happening to land. I remember one thing that came up in your social media, was mentioning gypsum stacks. And, you know, personally, I don't know a ton about them. And, you know, I'd imagine that our listeners may not either, right? So give us a primer. What are gypsum stacks? How are they produced? And what guidelines, if any, does the EPA or local government have to tackle their role in impacting your community's overall health?
0: I recently did a presentation. We joined a national organization or coalition of folks, you know, addressing fossil gypsum stacks. This is an issue nationwide. And so ours, a community in Pascagoula, is one that has two very large fossil gypsum stacks. As Barbara was saying, there is, you know, it's not just the gypsum stack, it's, you know, all the other industries that are nearby. And so the cumulative impact that the neighborhood and the residents living there is, is quite, you know, dangerous to be living so close to so many facilities. There's seven total facilities that are Title V permits, and one of them, was Mississippi Phosphates which was a fertilizer plant and it is the the plant that produces the phosphogypsin stack it has I think it was in 2014 it filed bankruptcy which apparently is a common thing that happens with fertilizer plants because the maintenance of the the, this byproduct this waste is so expensive and, and so, in 2014, we actually, you know, when we first started organizing in 2013, 2014 was our our, our first full year, and in, in Mississippi phosphate's was our target. They were releasing hydrogen sulfuric acid into the air and into the water, and it's part of their production process, and you know, talk about burning eyes and nose and rashes. And they had just a decade of violations. The EPA was after them. The Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality was after them. And so they were an easy target for us. They were in the news a lot. But unfortunately, by the end of that year, they filed bankruptcy, and which meant that they no longer were accountable to the community for all of the damage that they had caused. And they left behind a toxic site that the cleanup of endangered people's lives. It was, it was, there was sulfuric acid everywhere. And, and then they left behind these fossil gypsum stacks. And these, when you first actually drive down industrial road, right before you turn to go towards the neighborhood, there's this huge hill. And if you don't know any better, you think it's just a hill, <laughs> but it's actually toxic waste radioactive toxic waste it's covered so what they do in their production it produces a, a byproduct of the phosphogypsin that, that that's when they were producing the fertilizer and so this this byproduct this toxic waste is something that they can't generally are not able to reuse or sell so they just have to store it and it is so radioactive that from what I've heard is that they can't actually contain it like in a physical container and transport it because of risk of like explosion. So what they do is they put it on the, in these ponds and, you know, dig a hole in the ground and so forth and they, they pipe it in. And so ours is, is closed, which means that they they finished piping, And they cap it. And when they cap it, they put dirt on top and then vegetation grows, right? And so it looks like a hill. But essentially, it is this, you know, this waste that anytime it rains, it creates like rainwater that is extremely acidic and with heavy metals and is very dangerous, right? Well, the pond is supposed to catch the rainwater. And the... Whenever these companies were charged with Mississippi Foss when they were charged with maintenance it, they're supposed to treat it and then they'd release the water into the bayou, bayou cassat, where people fish, by the way. It's like people that's it's a fishing spot right there. And and so sometimes they have to do what's called a bypass. And that means after a heavy rain event, there's so much of it that the the billion gallon millions of gallons of the pond water that holds it, it spills over. So I don't know, you you know, you said before, you don't know much about the South and the Gulf coast, but it rains a lot here. Uh, there are hurricanes and storms. And so, you know, this, the toxic waste is releasing constantly. And this is just from the rain. Then you have to worry about the structural integrity of the pond. And so we learned all of this. And this was something that we it's just taken us years to figure out, and we've had to figure it out all on our own. <laughs> like Barbara is nodding her head. Yes, that is true. When Mississippi phosphates filed bankruptcy in two thousand and fourteen, the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality took over the maintenance and the cleanup. And the only the only liability was a eleven million dollars trust that the company was legally required to set up to because, you know, these companies, guess how long $11 million lasted, like three months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so, yeah, the the, the whole cleanup of the site is going to cost like hundreds of millions of dollars and it's all on taxpayers to pay for this because now the EPA has taken it over and it's officially a superfund site. And so for anyone who's unfamiliar with super funds, there's a whole like legal process, right? Program that the EPA has set up. And as part of this process, the EPA engages the community, right? Provides some education about like what's going on. The community has a, a stake and a voice in like the whole cleanup process. And, and, and there's supposed to be like regular updates. And so that we know, right? Well, this process started in 2018. We had two public meetings. Actually, both of them were presentation format. They didn't even let us submit comments. Do you remember that Barbara? I'm trying to remember. We we couldn't even talk. We couldn't even talk. That's right. That's right. We couldn't even talk. And there was a, a person with the EPA that was assigned as a community liaison. And the community liaison met with us afterwards and wanted to, you know, collect our stories and figure out what's going on. And obviously, we're not talking about just Mississippi Phosphates. We're talking about all of it. Like, you're going to hear the story. Oh, <laughs> you're going to hear the health impact, right? And so, this whole process of doing these interviews with the community liaison was to initiate something called the Community Action Groups, or CAG, where they set up this community-based group to come together to to monitor the Mississippi Phosphate Project and to address this issue and other environmental issues in the community, right? Months went by after the interviews and we never heard anything. So we'd follow up and be like, what's going on? Nothing. Silence. About six, maybe even longer, I don't remember the exact timeline, but at least six months goes by before we get sort of like a rumor that... The EPA got notified that we didn't need a CAG and that the community has already been engaged or it's like they're already engaging the community. So essentially we were denied our legal right to a community action group, which entitles us to like EPA resources and technical expertise and like support for grants and things like that. And so we we didn't get it. And even after we sent emails to the EBA phone calls, we were like, no, we want it. We still got no response. And since then, the only public meeting that has happened in regards to the Superfund site and the gypsum stacks is one, just, I think it was last year, of some virtual meeting, they were a small part of a presentation of a, of a larger meeting. Last year, the EPA, they actually did a their own site testing where they took, I guess, you know, air monitors and walked the fence line of several properties. And one of the properties that they walked was Mississippi Phosphates and the Gypsum Stacks. And they found elevated levels of, of benzene. I have it pulled up here, and I, so I'm trying to remember what the exact amounts was. But the EPA sets a limit for benzene. That's like nine parts per billion at the fence line, but the testing at the Mississippi phosphate site was reached like over a hundred parts per billion. And I'll have to double check that actually. But what I do know is that when they took the air samples at Chevron, Mississippi phosphates. First Chemical and uh, BT Halter and Halter Marine, those are the ones that they visited. The benzene levels were anywhere from 25 parts per billion to 217 parts per billion. Even then, like just to Barbara's point of us not being notified, like we, we learned about that as well through like grapevine but somebody that we know had told us about it so the epa hasn't contacted us about those results and what they're doing about it so we're sort of in the dark there around what you know what their intention was around actually doing taking the test and what they plan to do with the the results and and if there's any action steps that are going to happen and so when you ask this question about you know what are the epa guidelines and things like that It's really curious to me whenever you learn about what the guidelines are supposed to be and then what they actually are. And it seems like, yeah, like we don't, they don't have to follow their own guidelines. (laughs) Yeah, so it's kind of hard to answer. Like what exactly? That's the question we're asking. What are the guidelines? What are they doing to protect communities when they don't even have to follow their own
1: rules? I mean, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Like that was such an incredible breakdown. And I feel like I definitely have a better idea of, you know, what things look like and sort of what the opposition happens to be. And I actually think that that is a perfect segue into our next question. So from what we understand, it seems as though it's on the local community to hold these companies accountable. You know, I've found very often when you talk about holding certain industries or certain companies accountable, a large part of the opposition that, you know, comes up to even these accountability conversations is that these companies or this particular industry provides a source of local income, even if it happens to be to the detriment of overall community health. What would be your ask from these companies and or you know the local or state government in assisting you guys so that you could have the respect and protection you deserve as the local community?
2: Well, The first thing on the list is we need to be, we need to be bought out. We need a buyout. You know, over the past 10 years, nothing has changed. You need to do this. You, and we have followed every instruction they have given us as to different steps. Still no results. The issues are ever present and more stronger. You know, we need to be bought out to get out of this area where it's killing our people. You know, you can't you can't buy life back. You know, once it's gone, it's gone. You cannot buy it back. So we need to buy out, we need to get out of here, and the problem itself needs to be solved. You need to stop. Using these chemicals that's killing not only our people, but the environment itself. You can't grow tomatoes. You can't plant a garden. Not in the soil directly. If you do, you better not eat it. You know, I, I don't trust it because we have people that are trying to cut the grass. My dad, when we first moved in this neighborhood, we didn't, the issues were not here, not like it is now. The issues now is since they have put all of these different types of chemical plants in this area. You cannot cut your grass. So many people, you see people outside cutting grass with, you know, respirators on, face mask on. They can't breathe. So common sense would tell you okay, there's something in the soil. Okay, we got people that's been in in their homes for over 60 years. These people are older people. They cannot just up and move. Okay. So what you need to do, you need to buy them out and their health needs to be a ongoing process in which you are responsible for, or you should be responsible for because you caused the problem, but the fact remains If you don't stop using the chemicals you're using, the problem is still going to be there when you do the buyout. And we're talking, just say, a 15 to 20 mile radius, okay, where everybody is affected. We have a daycare right right out of the front door. Those babies are forever having RSV. They are forever having ear problems. They're forever having upper respiratory problems. Some of the babies have skin problems. This I know because I worked at the daycare with the baby. So I know firsthand for myself. And all of this is coming from these chemicals. So a buyout is something that needs to take place. I don't care where you get the money from. If you could spend $10 million to enclose a spot where there's no guarantee that the air won't blow, you mean tell me you can't do a bad? What's the issue? You know, you stop making excuses and be held accountable and do what you need to do to fix the problem.
1: Barbara, thank you so much for your testimony here. And, you know, August Wilson, fellow Pittsburgh native, had a quote in one of his plays where he said you know land is one thing god's not making more of and like you are stating you know once land is bad it's bad the idea is people have to be able to pick up and go somewhere else and they need the resources in order to do that moving's not an easy endeavor and you know certainly not when you have to consider health and the age of the community um so thank you again so much for your candor and i really appreciate that Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to the first part in our interview series with the Cherokee Concerned Citizens. Stay tuned for the second episode of this interview to be released soon. Thank you so much for listening.